Welcome once again to Casual Nonsense. Thank you so much for taking the time to give us a listen. I don't think you'll be disappointed today as Cousin Sean and I had the pleasure of speaking with one of the most inspiring people that you'll ever meet. Jimmy Kitson joins us on this episode and takes us through his cancer journey and how he and his family not only handled it, but how they turned it into something positive. I don't want to talk too much about it. I'm going to let Jimmy do the talking here. So uh, let's give it a listen. All right. Well, Jimmy, welcome to Casual Nonsense, man. Thanks for thanks for making the trip out here and joining me on the show. Doing okay this morning? I'm doing fantastic. It's 65 degrees outside on a, in December. I mean, Can't how be- lucky are we? Can't beat it. Can't yeah. beat it. Uh, well, I've asked uh, Cousin Sean to join us today. Uh, Sean, what's up, dude? Uh, what's going on? Also very excited to be here. I talked to Jimmy. Very exciting. Sweet. You have, um, I've always felt an interesting story. I always feel like it's kind of a topic that's a little, I don't want to say taboo, right? But I don't know. You have a lot of courage for what? Like, So you've gone through, is it, uh, is it brain cancer? Is that essentially what happened? So in 2021, which was, you know, we were immediately coming off a COVID year where we we're all working virtually, all working at home. Going into 2021, I uh, started to get some headaches and I'd never really been sick can't remember the last time I went to the doctor other than like just a normal check-in. Nobody wants to go to the doctor. Nobody wants to go to the doctor. <laughs> so, um, Make you cough. No good. Yeah. So especially as you get older now. So, you know, <laughs> a little more than the cough. Yeah, a little more than the cough right now. <laughs> so um, no. So I started getting headaches. It was like around January, February of that year. I attributed it to Zoom and virtual fatigue from a disc profile. I'm a high eye, which I love interacting with people i love connecting with you say high eye high eye which yeah. is influence on the disc profile okay so uh so there's d which is a dominant part where you're very direct you're results oriented i'm a high eye and a high d and uh so i'm people for me i just get high <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i love just connecting with people and it was different you know when you had to connect with them over a team's call or a zoom call so we had to change how we had our speakers teach because it's different if you're in a room of 150 people. To now do it on Zoom Now calls. do it all on Zoom calls and stuff. So we had to retrain them. And then all of our meetings, you know, were all virtual. And then I started coming into the office just like one day a week, I think, when they sent out the memo. So I'd come in, but there would be nobody really in the office. And I would get a lot of stuff done there. Uh, my kids were at home, you know, during that Those time. were actually good times because I used to come in the office then too. Yeah. And no one was there. It was, it was great. Fantastic. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I just needed a change of scenery for eight hours a day. And I think I think we worked harder and more hours during COVID. It was just we couldn't turn off. It was just tough. And I always felt myself at six o'clock or seven o'clock going back into my office to answer an email from somebody on the West Coast. And I'm like, okay, Jimmy, you got to shut it down. You got to. Because, yo, our, my relationship with my wife suffered. She, I was usually traveling three or four days a week, and I think she loved that part where I'd leave on a Monday, come back on a Thursday. Yeah. And uh, she's like, okay, you know, it's. Uh, I was doing that for like 10 years. I would leave on a Monday, come back like later Thursday night, and she liked that alone time. I mean, you know, without <laughs> the kids there, and yeah. even though I know she missed me. And, you know, I was looking forward to getting back in the office. But I found these knots on my head. I couldn't figure out what they were. And I had, I grew up on a horse farm uh, about an hour south of Raleigh and never wore sunscreen. So I was bailing hay, you know, mowing fields. This is what, as like a things. teenager? Yeah. So, okay. yeah. So during high school, you know, would constantly working on the farm. We had 360 pecan trees that are very frail trees in mm-hmm. nature. Not a hurricane, but just a tropical st- storm or, you know, just high winds. <laughs> the branches would just fall off and before you could mow that field with a bush hog tractor behind you behind a tractor you had to pick up all the sticks because that would break the pins in the in the mower yep so before i had it was double time like for us to mow a field and we had like 30 paddocks on the farm and so i had to go in there remove all the big branches that had fallen and then start mowing the field so it was like double time for normal mowing so never had sunscreen and then started getting as i got older I started noticing these little red, you know, things on my legs, on my arms, on my chest. If I was mowing a field, I'd usually just take my shirt off. I'd sometimes wear a hat. My dad got on me if I was wearing a hat because he said it was going to make me lose my hair, 
which eventually did happen, <laughs> um, but it wasn't hat related. I, I did research on that, and it's mostly from your uh, maternal father. So um, had all these. I've probably had like sixteen Mohs surgeries, which are skin cancer removals. I've never had melanoma. It's always been like a basal cell, a squamous cell. I know you listening in can't see it, but I've got scars all over my legs from multiple surgeries that I've had. And I was that dad beginning at 30. Like I had a bunch on my chest, on my shoulders, on my arms. And it was all from stuff that was done when I was a teenager. And so I was that dad at starting at 30 that anytime I was outside at the beach, pool, I had a swim shirt on, which was had an SPF in it to protect myself. Yeah. My kids, when they were younger, I don't think they put any notion to it you know, when they were like five, six, or seven. But then I think they got embarrassed of me as I was wearing this shirt out at the beach or pool. And they're like, Dad, do you have to wear that? I was like, I yeah. got to. I'm not <laughs> lathering up in you know, SPF 90 where it looks like, like the four-year-old. Yeah. usually see yeah. the four-year-old yeah. wearing that so they don't yeah. wear a shirt. Let's be honest. If it wasn't that, it was something else. They were, you were going to embarrass them one way or another. Oh, so. yeah. yeah. And I've historically done that. So. <laughs> That's your job, by the way. It's my job. And now with, um, you know, I've been married to Christy for 23 years. And then my son turns 21 uh, next month. So happy birthday, Connor. And uh, it won't be his first drink. I can tell you that. (laughs) What? (laughs) Kids these days, Uh, they're drinking before 21? Yeah. 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 Uh, And then my beautiful daughter, Kelsey, uh, just turned 16 last week. Nice. So, uh, she got her license. Uh, she did get her license. We bought her a car when I was fighting cancer, and then I was like, okay, I don't know if I'm going to get through this cancer fight because the statistics of what I had said best case scenario you live two years, but 75 percent of the people die within two years. Wow. Of what I had, I was like, okay, during cancer, I traded in the truck, ordered it from a buddy of mine at Ford. And it was a Ford Bronco. And we were like one of the first people to buy one. I remember Kelsey wanted a Jeep like her brother had. And let's do something different. So I ordered this Bronco without her knowing it. And then... Those are the the new Broncos. Yeah, the new Broncos. The four-door was soft top. It takes two seconds to lift the top off. Very similar to the Jeeps, yeah. Yes. I bought her that without telling Christy or her. But I just traded in my truck. And uh, so we go out one night. I said, Kelsey, let's go look at cars. And I said, I think I'm going to trade in my truck because nobody else in the family likes driving it. My friend who I bought it from had just gotten in, not the one we were going to buy, but a similar one. Said, okay, we're going out to dinner. And then I turned uh, the corner and we went to uh, see my friend Bo at Crossroads Ford or Capital Ford. And my wife knows I'm a very impulsive person. Like, (laughs) I value certain things. I'll pay more for tires. I'll pay more for cars. I'll pay more for certain things. I wouldn't call myself cheap, but sometimes I'm very impulsive. Like I get in my mind what I want and I go get it, which is tough for me now around Christmas because she she says I'm a difficult person to buy for. I think the last 10 years, she's just bought me art of shaving stuff for Christmas. So I said, you get that for me every year, a year supply, and I'm golden. And I use it every day. I mean, or most every days. So we test drove the Bronco, and again, I'm a Jeep person. Um, but so you had already bought it; no one knew it. Well, I had to put a hundred dollars down to reserve one. So and it was okay. refundable if we if it came in because nobody had seen it. Right. That's and not then, bad. That's not that much, man. No, it wasn't. But here's the funny part. So I said, "Hey, um, I put money down on a Bronco. Let's go drive it." And the the first car that Ford released in the Bronco series was the Bronco Sport. Um, it was just not a good looking car for what I thought my daughter would like. So she thought the Bronco Sport was what I had ordered her. And I was like, no. And then when we pulled up to the car, she's like, okay, we getting something like this? I said, yes, but I said, I want you and your mom to drive it because your mom's going to have it for two years before you get your license. So we drove it, and it was spacious. It was, you know, very well pointed on the interior. I mean, the Jeep is rugged, but this Ford Bronco was, like, awesome. Let's go test drive a Jeep. And let's see which one you like. Because I only have $100 into this, and I can get it back if it yeah. comes in and you don't like it. But let's go drive a Jeep. So we went and test drove the Jeep uh, Wrangler, four-door, similar car. The Bronco just blew it away with all the features, the way the interior looked. The space in the Bronco is awesome. Yeah, so we bought that Bronco uh, in December of 21. And the funny story about this and why that I share this is I'd been through cancer for a year. Bo was my friend and had been there a lot along with Pete. 
Um, and, uh, you know, they were always, uh, talking to me, lifting me up when I was down and, you know, very inspiring for me. They would all send, always send me text messages at the right time. The day before I bought the car, uh, Bo says, Hey, it's in, you can pick it up tomorrow. The day before I had a massive seizure where I should have died. I was unconscious for like 30 minutes. Wow. And, uh, so it was due to all the radiation and the stuff that I was doing. Um, I had massive infections rolling through my head, my body due to the cancer and the radiation. So the day before I bought it, I had, I was out. Uh, we were packing for a medical trip because most of my procedures were done down at MUSC in Charleston, which is the medical university of South Carolina. So that next day we were going to buy the Bronco, but, but we were also going to go get a minor procedure done. I had a seizure like at eight o'clock on a Sunday night where I remember everything that was leading up to the seizure. And then I was out for like 30 minutes. My wife was upstairs packing. So she heard like a wheezing sound and she thought it was our th- one of our three dogs just messing around downstairs. But she came down to find me slumped on a couch and unconscious. And the next thing I remember, I was watching a football game, getting ready to start Yellowstone. And I, I remember who was playing in the game, just like who was driving. And I just remember everything very vividly. You remember everything like it's a movie and you're rewatching the movie. But they were like, where were you? You know, where did you have the seizure at? And I was like at home and here's what was on TV. Here's who was playing. We were getting ready to watch Yellowstone. My wife was upstairs. But I was just slumped, just very uncomfortably on the couch and was out for 30 minutes. And the next thing I knew... I had my wife yelling at me, or not yelling, like she was mad at me. <laughs> Wake up, you lazy. <laughs> right, no, that wasn't it. Um, so she's yelling at me, hey, Jimmy, wake up, wake up. And then I had a bunch of EMTs, like, flashing stuff in my face. My heart rate had skyrocketed. My blood pressure had skyrocketed during this. It was 9 o'clock at night. My head is deformed as we're going in there. So we get admitted it was packed in the ER. And the ambulance brought me in there, and we go into a waiting room. And this was still during a massive nursing shortage during COVID. And I walk in there, and I look at my head, which is deformed. They're like, okay, you had a seizure? And I was like, yeah. I don't think the nurse knew what to do. Right. I mean, <laughs> this was a very unique thing that was going on. The next day, I bought the car, you know, had traded in my truck. Wait, so you came out of the, the ER? No, so I got out of the ER at about 5 a.m. on Monday morning, and we picked up the car at like 6 p.m. Now, we hadn't told anybody that I had a seizure. Sure. Because I was like, okay, the probability of me having a second seizure within two weeks was great, very high. And I was like, my wife, you know, this was in my name. I was paying for it. And I was like, okay, I got to buy it tomorrow. But I was out of it. I was on so many medications And so I don't remember signing the paperwork. I mean, I was walking around just aimlessly. And Bo asked my wife, and uh, he's like, is he okay? She's just like, get him to sign the paperwork. We're good. (laughs) uh, I don't want to get questioned on it. Like, okay, I had a seizure 24 hours ago. I think your wife probably has a vacation home somewhere that you don't know about. Right. (laughs) So You signed um, him that day. You know, talk about my wife to start this off. We've been, you know, married for 23 years. I mean, I think we've gotten to. Two major arguments that were both her fault, um, you know, in those 23 years. That checks out. Yeah. That checks out. But, um, you know, she moved from, you know, being my wife to my caregiver for like a year and a half. I was at home. I'm not somebody who, you know, can stand idly by and not do anything. I mean, I'm up every day at five, even on weekends. I just was going crazy while she was my caregiver through this cancer stuff. So basically to rewind, you know, found out about this type of cancer with the tumors that were growing in my head. You could actually see the tumors on my head that were growing inward and upward. So what they first thought it was when I did a CAT scan, these were just like basal cells or could be lipoma tumors, which I'd have multiple of, which are just fatty tumors and they're easily removed. You just make, like I had one right on the front of my forehead. It looked like I had a knot on my forehead. They just sliced through my forehead, popped it out. And that was like a 30-minute thing. It wasn't mm. anything crazy. It's funny how nonchalant you are about this, right? <laughs> You're like, oh, you just cut the forehead real quick. You take it out. Like, <laughs> I saw some the pictures that you sent over yeah. uh, in the presentation that you had. I'm not someone who wants to see those, right? So I'm, you know, I'm, I've been working with you, so I, I see you every day. But uh, I'm looking through those, and I'm like, I, like I, I go fast through those. Like, that's not, that's not something I'm 
for me personally, I'm not interested in getting a deep dive into the inside of your head. Yeah. <laughs> you know well, I mean? Yeah. We, we were, we didn't post anything like throughout the surgery. We didn't want it to be, you know, this like whole GoFundMe thing. And we realized that the diagnosis of what I had and multiple scans and multiple procedures, I would, it would seem like a lot of oncology centers or the hospitals I was at were right next to children's centers or children's hospitals. And I remember the, the last MRI I had uh, in April 21 before my surgery, uh, which was the first surgery was 18 hours long. I remember walking by children's parents' room at the hospital and just seeing all these parents that were stuck in there. And I asked questions about it. I was like, that's a lot of people in a room with COVID. They're all wearing masks. And the nurse who was um, doing my MRI or conducting my MRI said, well, that's our process now. If you have a child who is sick, who is going up for surgery, the surgical floor is like on floor three, but you have to check your child. And they brought the, um, the wheelchair or the bed down to the main lobby. And you as a parent had to drop your kid off with them. And then the nurses wheeled them up to the triage room or the waiting room. So you couldn't even walk up the stairs to be with your child wow. right before surgery. And I was like, okay, I, I, I said at that point, I'm never going to ask why me, because I saw those parents grieving in there. I'm never going to complain about what I got. I can't imagine my kids have that or going through that. Yeah. Um, I was like, okay, I'm going to beat this. I know the statistics of what I got, but we're going to beat this. Who cares about the statistics? I was like, and my son and daughter, when I told them about what we actually had and that it was going to be an arduous process to get healed, you know, my son coined the term, we got this, which is the title of the book that we wrote, you know, became a number one bestseller. Not sure how we didn't do any <laughs> promotions on it or anything, but uh, we wrote a book. Like five weeks after surgery, I was doing calls again, even though I was on leave for the company I worked for. Eventually, they turned off my email or told everybody not to be emailing me. But that was like my source of, okay, I'm going through this battle. You know, it's a couple hours a day of treatments. I know I'm on medication. I was bored. There's only so many Seinfelds and friends that you can watch. Yeah. You need a lifeline. You need something that connects you back to that normal. It, what it happened was. Before. It was. And I know it was not the right decision. And from an HR, if you're an HR generalist anywhere, you know, I know that I was probably doing something I shouldn't have been doing because I was on leave. Somebody was very direct with me saying, you cannot run these calls. You're on medication. If something happens and you say something while you're on medication. <laughs> so, uh, and well, that was entertaining, after. not good for the business. <laughs> right. Hey everyone, Mark here. And I wanted to tell you about a new podcast that I'm hosting. It's called The Double Take, co-hosted by Terrence Jordan. Uh, he and I together, we talk about our favorite rewatchable movies. We try our best to bring our unique insight and we do as much deep dive and behind the scene moments that you didn't even know existed. So if you like movies, give us a listen. You can find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. But to make it easy, you can find the links in the show notes for this episode. So remember, the double take, check us out. And now back to the show. So then I talked to um, a friend of mine named Michael Nisgoda, and he's like, I've been trying to get you to write a book on leadership because you're one of the most inspiring leaders I've ever worked for. And that's humbling when I have people who email me and tell me that I was one of the best people they've ever worked for, that they remember my quotes. Like I got three quotes today from my previous or this week from previous companies that said they were doing a leadership workshop and that my name was referenced multiple times. I wow. mean, that for me is what gets me going and leading people. And knowing that my legacy is on the impact I've had on people's lives. I don't care about monetary stuff. I've never been motivated by money. It's all about recognition and how do I have a positive impact on people. And uh, I felt like I was doing that prior to cancer. But then when Michael and I were talking about my stuff, he goes, he called Christy and he goes, you have to get Jimmy to write this book. You have to get him to write a book. Because uh, short story going long, the cancer I had was a form of skin cancer called carcinoma. It affects the average age of people it affects is 75 years old. I, I just turned 52 uh, this year. It hits one out of 400,000 skin cancer patients. So you talk about how rare this is. And anytime you hear the word cancer, I don't care if it's for a Mohs surgery or something else, your mind immediately goes to okay, I'm probably going to die from this. So echinopora carcinoma, one out of 400,000 skin cancer patients, average age is 75. 
even if you get rid of the cancer, it has a recurrence rate of 65% within two years, and then a mortality rate, if it comes back or not, of 75% in two years. So the statistics were very much against us. I was like, okay, I got two years left. And you sort of like, okay, puts things in perspective. I think I had perspective prior to this. But um, and I still get emotional talking about this because, I mean, it's just changed our life. It's made me better. I come up to you guys, and you guys can see my scars. But we all have internal scars and external scars. And I think about the internal scarring that my process of healing had on my family. And we're still going through it, you know, but it changed me sometimes for the better and then sometimes for the worse because the effects of the radiation and the surgeries that I've had, I still go to a surgeon to try to pretty up my head every two weeks. And, you know, I've got all the wounds closed now, but we still try to pretty it up. So the story of the surgeries was my first surgery was on April 27th of 21. It's probably going to be 12 to 18 hours long. It was the full 18 hours. So what they thought the size of the tumor that, that they could see on the scans was about the size of a fist. So if you put, if you make a fist and put it on the top of your head, that was sort of what they thought that they had to cut around. The challenge going into the surgeries, they saw the tumor and it had wrapped itself around the sagittal sinus vein in your head, which you can't cut. I mean, that is not an operable organ. And it had gone into the dura layer of my brain. So this cancer was so aggressive, it had dug through my skull into the dura layer of my brain. And uh, the surgery, they said, okay, size of a fist is what we think we're going to have to cut out. And when they do a surgery, like any type of Mohs surgery or my surgery, the cancer, they cut out the skin first. And for this one, then they had to cut out the skull. And you have to have clear margins, 360 degrees around whatever they cut out. So the first one, again, was the size of a fist. There were no clear margins on that. So they said, okay, we now need to cut bigger. And then it was sort of about the outside of making a fist. So much bigger. Uh, An open palm? Because you're showing me an open palm. palm. Yeah, so around the fingers of the open palm. That also did not have clear margins. What wound up being, and I don't want to hold a record for this, but it was the largest um, craniectomy that they've ever performed at uh, MUSC. So the steps of the procedure was cut the skin, and then the skull to get clear margins around it. And basically, it went down to my eyebrows. They cut, and it ran my head. So I had no skull. They removed it, uh, got as much of the tumor out as they could without messing with the sagittal sinus vein. And then they put a titanium mesh plate in, which is very moldable. You you would say, oh, I hear the term titanium. It's metal. Nothing is going to get through that. But when you actually look at a titanium mesh plate to protect your brain, it's very moldable, and then they just screw it into your head. Very interesting procedure. Then after they put that mesh plate in, they were going to remove my left lat muscle. And if you think about the size of my lat muscle, again, you guys can't see me, but I wouldn't consider myself a slim fit or a nimble guy, but I'm 6'3", 250. And uh, so they had to remove the lat muscle and surrounding areas to cover whatever now was the gap on my head. So when you guys see me, or if you go to my blog or see the book, you can see my head now, and it's huge. So the wound they had to take out of my lat muscle was 22 centimeters by 27 centimeters and about inch and a half depth. Wow. So they had to put that on my back. I woke up. We went into surgery at six, we started, and then I got out of the surgical room and was in an ICU for three days, starting about 1 a.m. the next day. I'm a stubborn man. I mean, uh, you could say stubborn and driven. (laughs) So I woke up and I was like, okay, I just survived it because it was, you. they said, you know, you need to get your affairs in order. So I looked at my will, I looked at all these things, you know, prior to that. But I woke up in a very foggy state and was drugged up, obviously, from all the pain medication of being going through an 18 hour surgery. And I heard people talking, uh, outside of the room was what eventually it was. I wanted to move my arms cause I felt that we were locked down. And I, I later found out, yeah, they had tied my arms down. So if I moved during the surgery, it wouldn't have screwed up anything, but somehow in my foggy state, um, and drugged up and recovering from an 18 hour surgery, Within an hour, I had bolt, pulled the uh, belts off that were tying my arms to the bed. <laughs> nice. And um, 
Yeah, and started talking and throwing up all over myself. And that's not a pretty picture of paint, but that's, that's what we did. This is real. I mean, we don't sugarcoat anything. And uh, so, and they immediately came in, gave me some more drugs or whatever to get me calmed down and tied my arms back down. And my wife was hysterical, crying emotionally, not hysterical, like funny. But she was like, oh my gosh, you know, she sees me now in my new deformed state. The surgery was as successful as it could be. We removed as much of the tumor as we could, but it was like double the size we thought it was going to be. So your biggest challenge is going to be the wound on his back, which was 22 by 27 centimeters. So they put something on my back, which is called a vac, vacuum assisted closure. So what the vac does is they see the open area, whether it's a small wound or it's a big wound, basically put this foam to fit, custom fit into your wound size. So it's very, you, you can snip it off the foam and they put it directly in, your, in the wound. Then they have to tape it onto your skin. So you got the foam and then the layer of tape. And then they uh, cut out a central part that's about three inches in diameter and they put this vacuum disc onto the foam and it sucks all the moisture out and contracts the wound. Uh, but I did not realize the pain that that was going to do, especially on the dressing changes. So again, 27 by 22 centimeter wound. That's almost two feet. It is. Right. I mean, that's, yeah, it's about a foot and a half, foot and I think, half, yeah. ballpark. Yeah. So yeah. And an inch, inch and a half depth too. So they were packing the stuff in my wound. And I could feel it, and it was the most painful part of anything that I went through. So they put the tape on, and it was supposed to be three times a week that they would come in. But because of my limited movement and the contours of my back, that seal would never last more than 24 or 48 hours. And we would have a home health nurse. Her name was Stella. She was Filipino. She was great. She would always talk about food. We would talk about parenting, but she was amazing. And she would come in three days a week. She was awesome. But sometimes the seal wouldn't take on the first one. So imagine you having a compromised area. They have to pack the wound with foam. They have to tape it on there. And if the seal didn't take, they had to start all over again. And while Stella was great, I mean, it was very difficult to put a wound back on my back the size that it was. So we went through that. I, we were told, okay, it should be looking better in a couple months. So we should be good. But then we moved into the radiation stage of my treatment because, again, remember, they couldn't get the whole tumor out with surgical. Radiation typically for cancer is that you pinpoint a small section because mostly you can remove a lot of the tumor. My situation, you couldn't. So instead of having radiation done to a specific part of my head, they now had to administer whole head radiation to me. That was awful. I'd be stuck to a, a bench that was about two feet wide in diameter. My arms would be hanging off as I was laying on my back, them sliding me into the radiation tube. Still at the back, so I was in so much pain. My arms are dangling because you had to keep them down. And uh, that was 32 treatments in 35 days for half an hour a day. And again, it goes back, I always say this because of the time that my wife had to drop everything else in her world to get me through this. I mean, she was a caregiver. Um, her role as my wife changed. Her role as a mother just became stronger because she was balancing all the stuff. I mean, my daughter was going through a knee surgery at the time also. So I joke that, you know, for medical stuff, we hit our dedu deductibles almost in Mar uh, March every year. <laughs> at least, yeah. Yeah, so between me and my daughter's surgeries. But, you know, uh, that was uh, a month and a half over at uh, UNC. So we did the radiation stuff at, at Carolina, which was only 30 minutes away. When you finish radiation, you know, we had, you know, 30 day, uh, 32 days, 32 treatments over 35 days. Don't know the results until three months after that if it worked. So we finished the treatments in July. I mistakenly came back to work like a week after radiation. And uh, that was not, that was a stretch goal I'd set, but... Sometimes stretch goals aren't realistic, and I've learned about goal setting, you know, <laughs> more through this. So I came back to work, was still wow. just not feeling good, but I was like, I just got to get away from the house, and I just got to do something and have purpose. And then, like, one Sunday, we had uh, my brother-in-law and my sister-in-law and their kid over. It was the first time we'd seen them since COVID, so for two years. I felt great all weekend. I felt awesome. I was cooking dinner, cooking breakfast, all these things. And then they left at 
uh, noon to go back to Asheville where they live, I sat down to take a nap because I think being around people had exhausted me. Didn't realize it at the time, but I was worn out. Sat on the recliner. Is This is in August. It was like a 95-degree August North Carolina day, mm-hmm. humidity. I woke up from just like half-hour nap, and I just felt like crap. I mean, I felt awful. Uh, so I still had an open wound on my head, and I could smell infection. So I knew from wound care experience, I could smell what was going on. And you can smell infection. It's, it's a just a rancid smell. I called Christy. I was like, hey, I went to take a nap. I woke up. I feel like crap. I need to get to the hospital. I mean, I had major infections all over my body. Was in the was uh, inpatient for 18 days after that. And then they finally moved me down to MUSC where I needed to have another surgery done. Carolina didn't want to do the surgery or anything on me because I hadn't been treated by them. They didn't know the intricacies of my case. So the longest four and a half hours I've had is being in the back of an ambulance going from Chapel Hill to uh, Charleston and riding backwards and having this guy who I know was just doing his job, but, you know, he was an EMT and he's just talking to me. So what type of cancer do you have? You know, why are you going down here? He's trying to make small talk. He's trying to make small talk. I'm like, dude, (laughs) shut up. Um, So that was a long car drive down there but basically we found out that we had major infections they hadn't installed pick line in me we had to fight these infections and that's what was causing my wound care how long after this did this take place so you did the so you did, did the, the treatment surgery, for the 35 April. days yeah right and that so. ended like third week of july and then this hit me august 1st this infection day so not okay so less Real than quick. like a month yeah yeah okay so, so you had a month where you think you're good and then you get infections. Well, I knew I wasn't good. You hadn't even got your results back. From, right. From I knew I wasn't good uh, because, I mean, I, the wound. Well, that's a, that's a bad word for me. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. right. The yeah. wound during radiation, it was very clean going into the first day of radiation. But what radiation does, especially whole head or whole the area, bigger area, is that it disrupts wound healing. So what became closed incisions around my head all of a sudden blew open during the radiation. And you can't treat the wound care when you're going through radiation because that delays healing. So they're like, okay, we're not going to work on these open areas. you got to get through radiation. And because of the amount of radiation I had, it's going to affect me until 2025 and beyond. I mean, I know that with how many grays of radiation. And not have. like in a you have superpowers kind of way. No, no. <laughs> that, definitely not. Well, I mean, me being standing up here and talking to you all on a Saturday morning, I feel <laughs> – I feel blessed that I'm at this point. Well, you got the power of influence at this point. Yeah. Right? yeah. So, um, inspiration. Basically, to, you know, narrow this down, I had 12 surgeries in 18 months. The longest, which was the first, was 18 hours. Every other surgery I had was about five hours in length. And the last one I had a year ago, November, uh, was 10 hours, where they removed the plate from my head. So, while the plate was a good concept, Sometimes when you insert outside metal or outside things into your body, your body can reject that. And so my body was rejecting the titanium mesh plate in my head. So last November, they took the plate out. So now I'm very conscious because I have nothing protecting my brain except my lap muscle. I'm a huge soccer guy. Go watch soccer games. or And we were tailgating at the NC State UNC game a couple of weeks ago. There's people throwing footballs around. And I'm just very cognizant of anything that's going to my head peripherally or if I can see it coming on. And again, I'm not too nimble. You don't want to walk around with a helmet? So they they asked me to. And I was like, I'm not wearing that. You know, if something hits me in the head or if I get in a car accident, then I realize, okay, I'm done. I mean, I understand that I fought the good fight. (laughs) Right. right. So, you know, it's unlucky. So, um, So, yeah, so 12 surgeries, 18 months. Uh, found out after the radiation that my cancer was gone, and that was in October of 21. I still go back for MRIs and CT scans and PET scans. Uh, but if it comes back, you know, I'm not going to put my family through that again, and I'm not saying that I'm giving up, but I can't go through They want to take my right lap muscle, you know. I'm not going to walk around with no lap muscles and my arms sort of hanging down. I mean, so, I mean, if it happens, it happens, but we have fought a good fight. I don't anticipate it coming back because we've done all the things that we're supposed to do, but you never know, you know, we may get tested yeah. again. So, we'll so see. I was going to, I was going to ask that. So like you, what do they give you a percentage chance to say, Hey, you're, 
like, I guess you're never hundred percent in the clear, but is there a percentage where they're like, Hey, you know what? Like I said, you've done everything you can do. Like, what are, what are they telling you at this point? Yeah. So through the last six months of going through these biweekly meetings, I've talked to my new surgeon at Carolina, who's great. And he's like, why are you going in for MRIs? You know, every three months, I was like, probably you guys are scheduling because I've got great insurance. And, uh, (laughs) but he's like, you don't need to do that. We just met earlier this week on the tumor board. You're in my conversation, uh, said if something comes back that you're not going to submit yourself or your family through another process like this. So if it comes back, we're like, okay, fought the good fight. We're moving on. And so, um, there's no prognosis because there's no textbook for ecrinoporal carcinoma. The plane had taken off and we're trying to learn how to fly it from 35,000 feet. That's what we talked about when we were going through this battle. But the multiple seizures I've had, the multiple challenges I had with wound care, infections, all those things. My main surgeon down in Charleston before I'm going to see the surgeon now in Chapel Hill, he said, you should have died twice that first year. Okay, because I felt like we were constantly moving up the ladder with feeling better. Then all of a sudden something would come along that would bring us back down. And I told him like after that August um, infection, so I felt like I'm running a 26-mile marathon, and I just got to mile 13, and you're asking me to run miles 10 through 13 again. You do it over. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, but he put, Dr. Day put it in perspective. He's like, you should have died twice this last year. There's no way you should have survived some of the things you went through. I feel lucky. I feel blessed. And, you know, I tell my story, uh, not so much at work. I think everybody knows when they see me coming through that, okay, the rhombus shape of my head now, it's not round, (laughs) that they know I've been through something, you know, we share it. Uh, But I don't want it to be about me. I mean, I want it to be about talking about the team that we surround ourselves with, because I was fortunate that I worked for, I worked for a company that cares about the individual in my, my sense, and never forced me to come back to work. They said, you come back to work when you're ready and when you're healthy enough. And again, of course, I thought I was healthy the week after radiation. Yeah. And everybody called me crazy for doing that. What what impresses me about you too is like you don't you don't walk around looking for attention. You're not like, hey, look at me, you know, feel bad for me. Like if you didn't see, like you said, if if your head wasn't shaped, uh, what is it, rhombus, rhombus or whatever, right? Um, then you wouldn't know what you've gone through, yeah. right? And I don't know what it's like to be you, but you know, at this point, I have to imagine that you say, well. I don't want any extra attention. I just want to come in and do my job. I want to move on with my life. Right. Yeah. And I think that's, what's impressive about you is that you're not, you know, I can't think of the right term. Milking it. it. You're not milking it. So I've heard people. Hey guys, buy me lunch today because I had surgery, you know, (laughs) never, never was that. And that's why we, we didn't post any picture. I didn't post any pictures nor did Christy, but we had text groups that were set up with like my college friends, my family with friends at a line. And she managed that process of being the communicator and it was tough at first because everybody's wanting to know, you know, okay, is Jimmy out of surgery? Is Jimmy out of surgery? Especially on that first one, you know, was getting bombarded. She was nervous about how my surgery was going, even though they were giving her updates like every couple hours. So everybody was like texting her, which again, I felt humbled by when she told me all the text messages that were coming in. And when I was, you know, well enough to respond uh, which was a couple of days after the surgery, I would respond to every single one. But we didn't post anything on Facebook to try to gain attention to us. I think right. the people who were closest to us knew that we were going through some ish, and, you know, we got through it. Uh, but the text messages from people just came at the right times when I needed it. Again, I was pretty much stuck in a lazy boy recliner for nine yeah. months. It just kept you going, though, yeah, right? it I did. Mean, it's awesome. It did. And I just knew my mental state had to be stronger than my physical state. And I think I was always that way. I never said that this was going to beat me. Even now, you know, going, I have constant headaches. I mean, I'm still taking an anti-seizure medicine, which has side effects of me being somewhat ornery or me being, you know, have a short fuse. Um, but so I like, try to you're manage You're just a miserable that. human being, Jimmy. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, 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 have to man- well, I, have to man- I have to work hard to manage through that because I can feel initial reactions are, you know, probably not the right one. I now meditate every day. Uh, I journal every day. Hmm. And um, and then I grade myself on my performance as an employee and a husband every month because I know, you know, my wife and I's relationship has changed. It's not the negative. She was a caregiver. She's still battling those internal scars 
that happened because of my cancer stuff. And when I do, you know, keynote speakers sessions, I did one for a training group. All the proceeds from our speeches and the book go to Make-A-Wish Eastern North Carolina. So we don't profit like a dollar off it. It's all going. We were at one check to Make-A-Wish. You know, last year between my son and me, I mean, I think we generated over $75,000 between the sales of the book, my keynotes, because they just write a check to Make-A-Wish. That's awesome. And my son runs a Make-A-Wish color run every year, which is a race. So, um, yeah, it was never about us. It was just saying, okay, going back to my original part, that I don't want my legacy to be built around cancer. I don't want it to be built around, you know, the money and the stuff that I've been fortunate to have and live comfortably with. I want it to be about how I've led and inspired people, but I don't point to it. I could have had, I led a session this week. I could have, there were a lot of similarities between what the session was on versus what I went through. But I never once said, oh, I went through this. This was my battle. It's never about me. Uh, I feel like I'm a servant leader and it's about me impacting others. And so that's sort of been my motto for years and then definitely heightened after cancer. When people know you and they know what you've gone through, I mean, like you said, you 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 credit your family for for being there and helping go through all those things, and I think everyone would like to think, oh, if I went through that, you know, my family would do the same thing, and hopefully we never have to find that out, right? right. But that's tough because, right, like you said, like you you should have died twice. Yeah, and uh, to build on that, you know, so after the year, because I was still going through so much stuff, infections, uh, seizures, um, surgeries, and all that stuff. We went from short-term to long-term disability. Our medical doctors have looked at this, and you can take permanent disability now. You never have to work a day again in your life. I was like, I can't imagine a world like that. I mean, I would go crazy. (laughs) You went crazy after a week. (laughs) Right, yeah. So, um, you know, they told me, you know, and that was in December of 21. They said, um, we're going to start the paperwork for you that you can be permanently disabled. You don't have to work a day again in your life. I was like, I can't do that. I said, I think I would feel that I'm cheating the system. That's just, again, my mentality. I could have taken the easy way out, but no, I'm going to try to have more of a positive impact on the lives of others who I haven't even met yet. Good for you. So, yeah. Were you to have done that, you probably, and I'm I'm insinuating here, I'm guessing, you probably would be doing the same thing with your days that you're doing being employed, you'd still be focusing on being that mentor, that leader, trying to impact other people's lives and spread that message. Anyway, so are you really working? Uh, no, I, I can tell you my job now and what I do, I love doing. Um, but I've also expanded my network and I'm a part of Cancer Buddies. And I also participate in some mentoring of people who I know who have cancer, who are going through the same questions that I had. Every now and then I'll get like a random email from somebody who's on Cancer Buddies and saying, hey, I heard your story. Can I help you with that? I I can tell you, my cousin's husband just came down uh, with tongue cancer, and they didn't know the questions to ask. They didn't know anything. He was similar to me, that, and she's like, he's never stayed at night in the hospital. I need to know the questions to ask the surgeons to determine this type of cancer. Probably the same as what I do every day. So, yeah. That's awesome. Thank you. First off, thanks for sharing that story with us. I think that I don't want to say it's an amazing journey because there's nothing amazing about what you go through, but it's amazing how you handled it, we'll say, right? Yeah. Right. So. Two paths. Two paths you could go, and we've we've decided that you haven't taken the other one. And, and obviously something else is that you can't kind of not be comfortable talking about it because, as you mentioned, when you walked down the hall, it would be hard to miss you before yeah. you were sick. You know, it's funny. My wife, I was supposed to go to New York this week with my wife to celebrate my daughter's 16th birthday, and I think you always remember – the 16th birthday. But we had planned a trip for her uh, to go up to New York and take her to see a couple shows. And then I had this workshop scheduled. And I was like, okay, I can't miss it. Christy, it's you and Kelsey going up there. You know, sometimes I miss out on a lot of things. Um, I definitely did when I was traveling. I missed out on the interweek things that sort of prepare you for the weekend games or the weekend events or whatever. I'm missing them up there. I'm here having a great time talking to y'all about this because <laughs> some of the things that they do, um, they gang up on me when Connor's not home and he's in co- college. Yeah, I think what that leads into is, you know, you were the type of person prior to that where you were already a strong person. Like I said, you were already in that leadership role and that training role kind of thing, that motivator, if you will. So how long did it take you to write to write the book? Like, did you do that as you were like 
dogged up in a in a stuck, hospital bed or a recliner chair. Stuck in just, the recliner chair for nine months. Yeah. All right. So I'll tell you, I'll tell you the process. So again, going into this, the first couple months, I was just taking notes, and I I've used Evernote, which is a great program to you know capture events since 2011. Every meeting that I've run since 2011 or every one-on-one I've had is all captured in that. And I can go back, and I think it's a great program. So my dad passed away with pancreatic cancer. He was given six weeks to live back in like 2007 and lived for four years with it. And again, my mom, you know, she's not technically savvy, but she had this notebook. And, you know, pancreatic cancer is very aggressive. It's very quick. The statistics are real. And it's a very high mortality rate within the first year. But he lived for many years afterwards. And she had this notebook, which was considered the Bible for pancreatic cancer. So every doctor that came in, she wrote down their name. If it was a mid-level, like a nurse practitioner, she would write down their name and write down to the word what they shared as they were going through that battle. She journaled the entire process. She journaled the entire process of everything around that. So I said, okay, I'm going to do that for the first four months, not to write a book. It was never my intention to write a book. It was just to say, okay, what we have is much different than anybody else has. I always judge a person by whatever position they inherit, and then when they leave it, is it in a better spot? And that's how I judge leaders or just people in general. What did you inherit? Because we all walk into good situations or bad situations, whatever. I was like, okay, there's no data on this type of cancer I have. So I'm going to start taking notes on everything we can in Evernote. And then halfway through when I sort of started, had to step away from the work, you know, is when I called, uh, had a conversation with Michael and he called my wife and he's like, Jimmy's got to write this book. He's got to write a book about this. I've been trying to get him to write a book. Now I have had a blog for like, since like 2015, uh, which is called Always Learning Leader. I try to, even though I've got 25 years of leadership experience, I still fight, you know, try to find something new to guide. Um, so have done this blog for since 2015. And so t- took some of the leadership principles that I've wrote about over the years and started writing the book. So the first four chapters were written retrospectively. So I, I went back to my notes, started journaling my stuff and putting it in pen to paper. But ev- eventually I got to the point where Four months in, I had four chapters. I was like, it's got to be a little bit longer than this. So then I started writing the book real time. So like when I had the seizure, for instance, in December of that year, the next day I immediately went and wrote chapters in the Word document and Mm. uh, started talking about what I just went through and then tied it into some type of leadership principle or foundational stuff that I taught and led. So first four chapters were written sort of retrospectively. And then the last four chapters were written real time as I was going through it, which is crazy. And I wrote the book. I don't care about grammatical errors. I wrote the book from my point of view. So and so if you read the first chapter of my book, I said, you know, you'll see that the shift in nature of my grammar is intentional, but it's not, you know, appropriate in the English language or writing. But I don't have I didn't have a ghostwriter. I didn't have anybody look at this. I wrote it from myself and my heart. I was referred to uh, two different publishing companies for books, and I knew nothing about it. But we went with this guy named Bruce who's up in Buffalo, and he goes, this is an amazing story. We're not going to edit one word out of this. Love it. And he's like, "Um, and we need to put pictures in it. So what we did is at the end of every chapter, there's a QR code. Mm -hmm. So you can QR code the pictures that take you to that story that I just sold in that chapter. And they're all on the blog site too, so all those pictures. And he's like, the thing I'm going to tell you is that like you said, you know, this is a world that a lot of people don't want to see. It's going to freak some people out when they start seeing your wound care because we haven't posted or made an update on Facebook or Snapchat or anything. And then, uh, so we published a book uh, in March. So he goes, what are your goals for this book? I was like, what do you mean goals? He's like, well, do you want to make money off? And I said, no, all the proceeds are going to go to Make-A-Wish Eastern North Carolina. He goes, what are your goals? I was like, I don't really have any goals. I just want to have people understand what I went through. And hopefully reading this will inspire them to be resilient, to have strength, to know that, put things in perspective. Um, And those were my goals. I didn't have any, you know, other goals other than that. Knew I wasn't going to get rich off it. He says, do you want to be a bestseller? It's like, no. I was like, I don't have the time to market that. I'm going back to work. I don't have the time. He's like, Jimmy, your story is going to resonate. He's like... 
you know, we'll release it. We'll do, we'll put it on Kindle for like three days for free and see who buys it. And it was mostly like my friends and people I worked with who bought, who got the free download. But then it's, they started sharing the download with other people. We sold, I think, 10,000 books like the first week. Wow. And I was like, this is crazy. And for one day, in order to be considered a number one bestseller for New York Times or Amazon, you just have to be the best-selling author in a category for one day. And then you can label your and book you get, that way. Yeah. Right? Oh, wow. So um, day three, Bruce texts me. And he's like, hey, uh, you're the number one bestseller. Look who's number t- in the cancer category. And he goes, look at who number two is. And it was John Grisham. And so I have the, the hmm. distinction of selling more books in a day than John Grisham did that day. That's so I know that that's something to brag that's about. Cool, yeah. It was uh, it was neat. I saw that picture and I was like, okay, this is having an impact. And then over the months, you know, I would talk to Make-A-Wish and the royalty checks go to them. Yeah, they'd be like, okay, we're you're selling a lot of books. And yeah. I, I can't remember the last time we got on to see how many books we sold, either online. And uh, it just took off. I mean, it was crazy how it took off. Yeah. And then a friends of mine said, hey, do you ever talk about this for speeches? So the first one I did was for uh, Red Nucleus, uh, which is a great company. I've been really good friends with their owner. Over the years, he's like, I want you to come in and tell your story to my uh, U.S. leadership team. I was like, I can, but I can't really fly. I'm going to have to do this virtually. And I just won it. I just had the book in front of me, took notes. And he says, Jimmy, he's like, you had people crying in the room. (laughs) He's like, that was crazy. He says, I want you back and to do it, you know, virtually. But can you put slides together to show the pictures? So I just said, just like me, I'm. I hope I'm a simple man. I don't ask for much. And uh, so we just created just this generic PowerPoint deck on a template that was already pre-established for us. I did a virtual thing for the global Red Nucleus company like three months later. And on each one of those, like he goes, you know, I'm going to make a donation to Make-A-Wish. And I said, don't pay me. I said, it's probably better for you to send a check to Make-A-Wish. And each one of those, he made a donation for $7,500 to Make-A-Wish. And now, you know, if people ask me to speak, I'm very, you know, I have to have balance between work and life. So I only do like five or six of these a year, but all the proceeds go to Make-A-Wish Eastern North Carolina. I feel good about that. I feel blessed to be in a situation where I can do that. Yeah, that's the story of how the book came out. I mean, wasn't expecting anything, but it just blew up. It took, took off. off. Yep. In addition to that, like this is, you know, this is one of the reasons why I asked you to like, come on the show, right? Because... Like just when you think you have enough on your plate before that, I mean, you run a barbecue business. Like you still, you still cooking, you still making, you still making bald man barbecue. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like I've been using that seasoning for years. Yeah. So, um, (laughs) you know, it's funny when you and I first met, like on my first day, um, we, we had, we just started talking about it. And one of the things that I learned immediately in working in a home office environment, are there two groups you got to be friends with immediately? IT and finance. (laughs) <laughs> so I remember Mark walking in and giving me my computer and uh, I was like, dude, we're going to be best friends. We're going to be good friends. I'm going to need you. And when I need you, which hopefully is not too much, I'm going to need you to hopefully come quickly. And it, the service that entire IT department of the company I work at is amazing. Yeah. So I was taught that my first home office job, you have your team, you have other people, but befriend IT and finance as quickly as you get into that office. I can tell you our, our financial leader for the Americas, she's amazing. She's the best finance partner I've ever had. Yeah. And uh, she is unbelievable. She's not the typical finance person. Um, she understands the value to certain things. And uh, so she is truly the best finance partner I've ever had. Our IT team is one of the most responsive. And so we lived in Texas for like six years. And this was like between tw- 2007 and 2013. I really am not a fan of Texas barbecue. It's beef. The sauce is not like what it is in North Carolina. Mm-hmm. I missed North Carolina barbecue when we. Now, if you are you know in Texas and you want North Carolina rubs or sauces or whatever, you know you just go to Amazon and you can order stuff. Get whatever right? you want. It's, from it's Amazon. everything. Yeah, everything is is readily accessible. I told Christy, I was like, okay, I, I want to buy a smoker. I want to understand how to smoke pork shoulder. 
it's different, the sauce, and I need to figure out how to make a good rub that I would use for North Carolina pork shoulder. And I test profiled probably like 50 rubs. And I said, okay, I would rate them in Evernote. And I would say, okay, this is, I like it. This is sweet. This is too hot. I don't like coffee. So take the coffee part out of it. Um, cause there's a lot of rubs made with coffee grinds. So, um, I love bourbon and I wanted something that was a sauce or a rub that everybody would enjoy. So I finally came out with, uh, you know, some test pilots made in my kitchen and I would put them in like little Ziploc bags of the rub and I bring them to the, uh, the office I was working at. And it felt like I was dealing drugs. I mean, it was, and I wasn't, obviously. It was just having people test out the rub. And, like, the first batch was close, but it needed, I think, a little bit more salt. The second batch, I think we got right on, and everybody who tried it was like, this is awesome. And they're like, you have to make a sauce for it, too. So I asked a friend of mine, I said, what goes into a good vinegar sauce, like, for North Carolina? And he gave me the outlines of a recipe, but I had to add some flavoring of bourbon in there. I made, when I was in Texas, I made the ball man rub, the ball man mop sauce, and then eventually the ball man back rub. And I've loved doing that. That was all before cancer. And then I said, okay, I need to be an expert in this. I need to get certified through to be a judge for the North Carolina Barbecue Society and Kansas City Barbecue Society. So those are day-long certifications where you're in with about like 20 people in a room and you're testing different things and understanding like my taste palette might be different than yours, might be different than yours, but you all rate it on appearance, texture, taste, all these things. But I view things differently with my palate and my eye than anybody else would. So that's why being a judge is unique because mm-hmm. it takes the average of the scores and then rates you on all the different things we rate them on. So that was prior to cancer. Connor and I providing food for different charities that were asking us to help that I knew. So Fly to Hope was like the first one that sort of kicked us off to saying, okay, we could do this to make the rub, but I can't make hundreds of jars in my kitchen, bottle it effectively. Right. So that process, Mark, was we had to find a manufacturer at first. I gave them my recipe for the batch of 10 bottles, and they took that and made it to a batch of like 500 bottles. They made it. I tasted it for the first time, and I was like, okay, this is good. Then they have to send it to uh, the FDA, which they have a food service program at NC State. And then they determine the label, the calories, how long it's good for, all those things. Over the course of a month, we went from not having manufacturing to having a label with, you know, the calories and ingredients on it. Yeah, that's cool. And then we found a marketing partner, Karen, who is amazing. She created our brand. The first thing we saw when she created our brand, you know, she was asking me all these questions about what is the essence of the brand? You know, what do you want to be known for with this? And the first go around and pass at the marketing, Christy and I were like, okay, done. That's a, yeah, one and, yeah, one and one done. And done. I don't, I'm not an analysis by paralysis type of person. So, um, yeah, so it was great. And that is stuck. I mean, I think the labeling was awesome. We created a website. We created, you know, recipes with it. But then when I got cancer, we had all we had, we said we're not going to go to like a Harris Teeter or to a Lowe's Foods or a big grocery store. We wanted to sell it at local small companies. That was our goal. And I, I mean, we had somebody in our neighborhood who was like, "I love it." I have somebody, a brother who, or somebody who uh, works at Lowe's. They've got like that North Carolina section. Sure. He's he's like, you can get on there. I'll just call them and you can get in there. I was like, I didn't want to do that because and then I burned the business partners that I have who are operating on low margins. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, I'm not going to do that. I want to remember who I was when we built this, and I don't want to have to mass produce it. But then I got cancer, and we had it in 20 stores all across North Carolina. My wife became sort of my mule to deliver all yeah. these boxes because I couldn't drive. Probably when I came back to work uh, after you know I was able to, I sort of dropped the marketing of it. I mean, we still have a bunch of jars and stuff. Um, in my closet at my home. It was just not something that I can manage. So then I turned my shift to writing the book, publishing the book. Yeah. So you're still producing the barbecue stuff now, or is that is that still on hold? It's on hold. Okay. Because um, the cost of it, I mean, it's got two-year shelf life. I didn't want to make it so much that, you know, I'm just giving it out to people, which is pretty much what I do now. I mean, I've got people who come up to me and said, 
So, um, so I have the capability. I can make a batch of 10 easily. I mean, I've got that recipe. Yeah, still down, but mass producing. We we've just you know temporarily put it on hold. Yeah, he said, "Oh, I want to take over the ball man barbecue business." And I was like, "Well, you got to shave your head if you do it," because like <laughs> when we would be out there on a Saturday at a firehouse or wherever we were, um, we would smoke meat, and then people would taste it, and they're like, "Oh my god, this is amazing!" And they would buy up like almost everything we had there. Um, so we never charged anybody for the the charities or stuff we cook for. We just did it out of the goodness of our heart. But the one at Flight of Hope, everybody's like, where can I buy this rub and sauce? And I was like, okay, maybe this is something. So Connor was a junior in high school that year. And I made a part of his DECA plan, his marketing plan, to say, hey, let's create a go-to-market plan from manufacturing to selling to shipping and figure out all those margins and if you can make money on it. But yeah, yeah. It, it, it's still a fun project. I still try to have something on the smoker every weekend. I have an amazing family. I'm very blessed. Uh, I think you have an amazing story in general. So, you know, I appreciate you coming on today and, and sh- sharing the, the details and the different things that, you know, there's a lot of people that don't do even one thing, you know, <laughs> like, which yeah. is okay. You can yeah. have your work and do your thing, but to like, to, to, to run this business, to write this book, to, to go through the survival that you've gone through, I think is pretty cool. And then to still maintain that leadership, you know, mentor status, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, I mean, it's clearly that's something that's deep inside of you and that, yeah. you know, that's important to you, you know, cause like, like you said earlier, you could have took the easy way out. You could have been fully disabled and said, I don't have to work. I'll just kind of chill out. You could be disabled from work, get a, get a monthly check and then run your business anyway, yeah. you know, but here you are still, still doing it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have all the, all your links to different things, like you mentioned, like the blog, and we'll put a link to the book if people want to check it out. Um, I'll put those in the show notes below so people can people can see. Um, Sean, did you have any? Um- I was just going to say the one thing I was afraid of happening happened today. Uh, I I had questions about various things, but uh, we didn't get to a, a few things that I would have liked to have brought up. I mean, you covered things before I even mentioned it. Uh, it was uh, again amazing story. If I could echo a few things that Mark said, uh, I was really excited about talking to you today because I knew that you had a lot of uh, a, a great story and that I'll, I'll put it out there in the world. Like I feel like you put me to shame. Like I, I get up in the morning, I do my day, and I'm thinking, my God, <laughs> like I'm sitting here thinking, geez, Jimmy's doing like three days worth of, of my day and, and you know half of his day. So yeah. Yeah. So, so thanks for joining us today. It was, oh. it was, a, it was a pleasure to speak yeah. with you. Thank you for sharing uh, yeah. your, the openness of your of your that who you are with your story. I think is uh, is also encouraging. No, I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. So I think what's what people don't like what I what I like what what I have the benefit of and 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 Sean as well. Like we do work with you every day. You know what I mean. So if there's a question I have or something I need, like. I can just find you and we've, we've talked about, I'll see you in the office bright and early, uh, you know, most every day (laughs) and, uh, you know, swing by, chit chat a little bit or whatever. So, so, but I encourage anyone listening to dive into more of Jimmy's story. If you haven't, you know, read his book, he brought me a copy today. So thank you. I'm going to read that and just check it out. You know, I mean, I think that it's to see, like you mentioned, you have the, the, the QR codes as well to, to look at the pictures. So if you can, if you can stomach it, Check it out. I had, no, I had sent Sean the uh, the PowerPoint thing that you had sent mm-hmm. over to me, so he was looking through those as well. Mm-hmm. The, the story definitely does it justice, but when you see the pictures... To be honest, when you say the 20, 22 and a half by 27 centimeters, I saw that picture and I'm thinking to myself, it, it looks bigger than that. It looks bigger than a, you know, a foot. Yeah. That's what they told me. Yeah. I, I didn't go with that. <laughs> I wasn't measuring with the ruler. Nah, you, no. know, on the back. you had other things on your yeah, mind. That's what they told me. Nice. Um, and again, it was... Uh, that was the toughest part of going through it, just because the pain levels were typically at like nine or ten out of t- or ten out of ten going through those procedures. And I know everybody was trying to remove the tape very softly, um, but uh, it always felt like they were tearing it and ripping it. So it's fine. It's you know it made me stronger and it made me realize how lucky I am. And you know I never said okay this is going to defeat me. I mm-hmm. mean it's not. Again, my son sent the rallying cry. If we got this. You know, I was fortunate to have support of so many people that were on my team, were not on my team, were on pe- previous teams, and they still connect. I, I feel humbled to be a mentor to some people who are going through this stuff. Hopefully, I told you about what my version of leader are. If they inherit a situation, do they leave it behind in a better place when they leave it? And I still think I'm doing that, and I, I challenge every leader 
to say, okay, what did you inherit? You're, you're always going to have bad days. And I told you I rated myself every month as a husband, as an employee. I mean, I'm never 12 for 12 on exceeding expectations on either. Um, but I know I've been tough on family stuff and I miss some of that. Like being, not being able to be with Kelsey, like on her birthday at all. And then not having to go up to the work trip, but I have to prioritize work and life. So that's the key. Yep. Work life balance, man. Got to have it. Yep. Awesome. Yeah. Well, again, thanks for coming in. Sean, thanks for, uh, thanks for joining and, and listening to this. You got to hear it firsthand, which I is great. I got to hear it firsthand. Um, so yeah, I'll put on the information below and, um, yeah. All right, buddy. Thanks. And, uh, thanks for listening and stay casual.